This is Exhibit AI, a podcast exploring contemporary legal issues for tomorrow's technology, presented by the Center for Legal and Court Technology at William & Mary Law School. I'm your host, April Sawhill, AI Senior Research Fellow at CLCT. Our discussion today concerns ransomware attacks. These attacks target private and public enterprises, and they are increasing in frequency and magnitude. I'm joined today by two guests with expertise in cybersecurity to learn about ransomware, which has been used to facilitate supply chain attacks and how we can mitigate against it. Here now is Chris Shenafiel, Principal Engineer at Cisco Systems and Adjunct Lecturer at William & Mary Computer Science Department, and my colleague at CLCT, Daniel Shen, Cybersecurity Researcher and Research Scientist at the Coastal Virginia Commonwealth Cyber Initiative. Chris and Daniel, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We've heard quite a bit in the news recently about ransomware cyber attacks. Daniel, please share with us what you've observed. Sure, April. There's been a lot of news about ransomware and also other cyber attacks uh, alleged to be conducted by other foreign governments. But I'd like to just kind of highlight two major cyber attacks that might be of interest for our audience. So the first one is the solar winds attack on December 12th, 2020, which is uh, last year. Solar winds, uh, which is a U.S. company that specializes in producing IT management software, was advised by a third party that a security vulnerability manifested in its product platform, also known as solar winds, as a result of a cyber attack. And what happened was threat actors, also known as hackers, uh, infiltrated SolarWinds, their headquarters systems, and attached a malicious code within one of the update files for the SolarWinds software. And threat actors, they kind of waited until the update was pushed to other SolarWinds customers. SolarWinds did not know that their update file was compromised. And after the update files were distributed and installed onto SolarWinds customers, threat actors were able to monitor and infiltrate IT infrastructures of various private and government systems, including uh, some of the U.S. agencies. The other major cyber attack that I would like to highlight is the Kaseya attack. And Kaseya is an information technology software company that specializes in developing tools for remotely managing IT infrastructure. And on July 2nd, 2021 of this year, a cybersecurity firm Huntress Labs Incorporated publicized that several managed service providers were being compromised by a particular ransomware. And just for our audience, managed service providers are third-party organizations whose job is to manage IT infrastructure on behalf of their business customers. And this ransomware was affecting thousands of business customers worldwide. And Huntress Labs contacted Kaseya regarding this possible cyber attack centered around the Kaseya software called Kaseya VSA. And both companies discovered that threat actors were using several vulnerabilities within the Kaseya VSA server software to take control over servers and spread ransomware to customers of the managed service providers. 
And so those two, the Kaseya hack, as well as the SolarWind hack, both involve a very sophisticated supply chain attacks. Uh, one involving explicitly the spread of malware. And those two incidents really changed the landscape of how cyber attacks may evolve over time. Let's back up just a little bit for our listeners. Daniel, would you define what ransomware is and how it's used by threat actors? Certainly, April. Ransomware is a type of malicious software that encrypts victims' important files in order to demand payment uh, as ransom to restore access. So compared to previous malicious software, ransomware is distinct in that they purposely, surreptitiously, secretly go into a victim's computer and seek files that may be of importance, such as office documents, pictures, and slowly encrypt all those files until it is done encrypting all of the files that it can and show itself to the victim and demanding ransom to unlock these files. And the encryption scheme that a lot of the ransomware uses, they use advanced encryption so that victims can't just merely brute force to unlock the encrypted files. And most of the time, actually all of the time, these threat actors demand their ransom payment using cryptocurrencies. Why would a threat actor desire to be paid in cryptocurrency rather than more traditional payment modes? So before cryptocurrency existed, we had various methods of paying somebody using digitized systems. The feature that distinguishes cryptocurrencies from other modes of digital payment is that other types of payment allow government organizations or financial institutions to reverse financial transactions. And you can see that traditional scams where people try to wire money to an unknown bank, financial institutions can simply reverse the transactions and recover the money. Cryptocurrency, on the other hand, due to the way the system is designed, all transactions once initiated cannot be reversed. And this is a huge benefit for threat actors because once they see the transaction being initiated, after a while, that transaction becomes permanent. They get the ransom without the fear of being reversed. And also cryptocurrencies in general do not require revealing of identification by the cryptocurrency users. So for threat actors, they don't have to reveal their true identity uh, to engage in this type of payment system. Chris, I'd like to turn to you now and talk specifically about SolarWinds and Kaseya. And I understand that they are a specific type of ransomware and Daniel called that a supply chain attack. Can you tell us a little bit more about what makes a supply chain attack and how that's different maybe from other ransomware attacks? Sure, I'll, I'll give a couple of clarifications to the SolarWinds attack was a very uh, highly varied attack. It could include ransomware, it also could include exfiltration, which means extracting out data, stealing information from the victims, or just sitting and monitoring what's happening in the enterprise. So they, they can, that's called an advanced persistent threat, which means you can get into the enterprise and just watch what's happening and just stay there and not be detected. That's kind of what SolarWinds was. It was a highly varied attack, very sophisticated. The unique aspects of SolarWinds is that it was a malware implant placed 
in the SolarWinds software. Someone broke into SolarWinds Enterprise, the development enterprise, into the development environment, inserted their own package in that environment, injected that, their own code in the development environment as if it were written by a SolarWinds engineer. And then that, that got built with the overall SolarWinds package, which then was distributed as an official SolarWinds patch. So it would look something like this, where you get an update from Microsoft on your laptop, and it says, install the latest versions of this software for security patches. That's what it looked like to the customer. And they did, and it contained the malware. So that, that is a pure supply chain attack. They inserted it into the supply chain of SolarWinds to create a malware package that infiltrated SolarWinds customers. And it had a very deep impact on those customers, uh, as I mentioned before. And Kaseya was a little different in that they were providing software tools for managed service providers. And those companies are responsible for taking care of small business networks and servers and systems. They, they do malware scanning on laptops. They do configuration management for printers and routers. They do configuration management of the desktop computers, do software updates and patches. They take care of all that hassle so that no small business has to worry about that stuff. They just contract with a service provider and they do all that work for them. To do that, so the Kaseya had to have some special feature that agents installed on those Windows laptops and computers. And those agents were what were attacked. They became the vector for the, the ransomware attack. So that's how SolarWinds and Kaseya are a little bit different. But in any way, any case, the victim, the small business, was damaged by their service provider. In the SolarWinds case, it was SolarWinds, a service provider. In the Kaseya case, it was a managed service provider who was a provider of services. So they were both supply chain, but a different approach. Chris, how can companies and also end users protect against a ransomware attack? Yes, that's, that's, that's a really good question. So I think that the, uh, there really begins with planning ahead. That's the first step. Have an incident response plan. And this would mostly be for organizations. How do you plan to deal with this when it happens? And if it happens, what are your steps? How are you doing backups? When are you going to recover from a backup? How do you verify you can recover from backups well? When you detect you're being impacted, what is your response to that impact? Do you isolate those machines quickly? Do you shut them down as soon as you can and then protect the rest of your network? Just define what you'll do ahead of time so you're not grasping for the answers during the crisis. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. But in general, the recommendations are, first of all, back everything up, have a disconnected backup because many of these ransomware attacks also encrypt the network file shares. They're used for backing up. They knew about this ahead of time, so they went after that attack first. So don't have your backup systems attached to your network. Disconnect them after you're through with your backups. So in case there is a ransomware attack, they can't find those drives to, to encrypt them. Then you cleanse the systems from the malware you usually restore them from a known good state and then begin to recover your data and reconnect them and reattach them and rebuild your, your systems from, from scratch. Now that's, that requires you to have a good plan in place and it requires you to have good tools in place and it requires you to anticipate this happening to you. So, and that, that's true for an individual too. If you have a laptop, if you own a laptop and you get infected through an email attack, 
you should have backups and you should not have them as a backup file on the same laptop as your laptop. It should be somewhere else disconnected from your laptop. So that if, if it does happen, you can plug in your recovery, reboot and reinstall your system from scratch. So as a laptop user who only has one laptop, <laughs> can I put my backup on the cloud? Is that safe? Generally, yes. But I would prefer to have a local backup because what I do, and this is just me, what, what I do is I have a mirror backup of my system that completely mirrors my local computer drive into a separate drive and keeps that, that updated over time. And what that allows me to do is to boot from that backup drive. If my computer is completely wiped out, I can actually plug in that disconnected drive and boot from that drive to a full system running and then pull everything back over again that I need. You can't do that from a cloud very well. That's the cloud's gonna not let you boot from the cloud very well. Okay, I appreciate that. I'm gonna be doing that, thank you. <laughs> so Daniel, was there anything you wanted to add about ransomware management? Any thoughts that you had? Sure, April. So ransomware, the biggest sort of silver bullet that you can do is really back up because ransomware can evolve and uh, intrusion techniques that ransomware uh, utilizes might be a zero day vulnerability and ransomware can, you know, even if you have antivirus software, firewalls and all these different security measures, anybody can hypothetically be attacked and affected by a ransomware. But if you have good backups that are easily pliable, the threat of ransomware can be mitigated. You still have to address the vulnerability, by the way, on how the ransomware first came into your system. But if you have good backups, then you can easily restore your system operation. As Chris said, especially I do echo the sentiment that you should have a full system backup, not just your personal files, not just you know part of your programs, but the entire hard drive so that you can just clear it out and restore back in time before an infection was uh, manifested itself. If there's any people out there who might not be too technically savvy, this is what I do with backups. Yes, I do utilize cloud backup, but I also utilize some backups, offline backups that people might not utilize, including optical uh, drives where you have Blu-rays, DVDs, where if you burn those files on an optical medium, those files are secure. Ransomware cannot reach those backups. Some companies actually use tape backups even to segregate their backups away from their IT infrastructure. Just a comment on the incident response plan. So I know we live in a digitally driven age, but please make sure that your incident response plan is accessible even if the ransomware incident occurs. So I would recommend printing the incident response plan out in case your incident response plan that's stored on your systems also gets infected with ransomware. Because if your system is locked out and your incident response plan is also within that locked out system, then you don't have your plan of action ready to address the threat at hand. Have your incident response plan physically available and also the most up-to-date version uh, as well. So these seem like, seems like simple advice, but I'm hearing both of you say, and you cannot stress enough, <laughs> back up your systems, have it handy, have your response plan printed out so that if something happens, you, you can easily get to it. 
Well, let's talk now a little bit about what's happening within the industry to combat supply chain attacks and maybe also ransomware. Chris, what are you seeing in the industry? What are people doing? Well, first of all, companies like Cisco and others are, we, we try to learn from the industry's experience. So we, we do a quick inspection internally. So what are we now vulnerable to? Every company's doing that right now. Uh, what are we now uh, what should we be focusing on to make sure we're not vulnerable to this too and learn from this experience ourselves? Everyone's doing that, I'm sure. And additionally, governments are saying the same thing. The EU Cybersecurity Act has come out with a statement about certification frameworks for ICT, as they call it, and information and communication technologies. They have to have member states being certification authorities in member states of the EU. So they're, they're beginning to say, let's, let's begin to put some sort of an inspection on this asset that we're incorporating into our governments, which is software. And on May 21st, the president signed an executive order, which was more extensive than the EU's description. They're covering everything from incident management to good practices on, on information sharing to enhancing the software supply chain security, which included things like improved visibility of what's being shipped in any given package. The government has the, wants to have the opportunity to inspect what they're buying. They wanna know what they're buying and they know what the, what the security posture of that product is. So they can say, I cannot accept this because it has these libraries inside and I cannot accept those libraries because I know they're vulnerable. Otherwise, if they haven't got that visibility, they can't even say those things. They can't even determine if that's the case or not. So they're very strongly coming out and saying, we want to be able to improve visibility, to be able to see what we're buying and what we're installing and being able to accept or reject that based on sound, good security practices. Chris, you've told us some things that the government are doing and you mentioned President Biden's executive order. In the news, we've also heard the Federal Bureau of Investigation providing advice not to pay ransom when there is a cyber attack. Do you agree with that? Well, who am I to disagree with the FBI? But certainly, I, I, I think there is a, there's different schools of thought. It depends, I think, on the risk profile of the victim. There is a fiduciary responsibility an enterprise has to its stockholders to make the best choice for a given expense. And that maybe the best choice would be to manage the cost of this infection by paying and getting your data back again. It's an individual decision that has to happen at the very at the highest levels of the organizations to figure out what's the best path for them to take. There have been many case studies about this scenario, and I've seen most case studies show that the, the organizations, mainly the government, state governments or city governments who decide to not pay, end up paying as much or more to recover their data and their systems and take a long time to do that. So that the, there's a long duration to recover and the cost is about the same as it would have cost or, or more than it would have cost to pay the ransom. However, I understand the problem of paying ransom, you're, you're encouraging that behavior. But honestly, the number of ransomware attacks are happening now, they don't need encouragement. They're getting what they want and there's plenty of reason to continue this work. And it's not about encouragement, it's about managing what's best for you as an enterprise. But also acknowledge that you are rewarding bad behavior. And I just want to add one hidden assumption that we're operating in is that after the victim realizes that he or she 
as ransomware on his or her system, that the first person contacting the victim is the threat actor that deployed the ransomware in the first place. And the issue is, do we really know that the first individual that contacts the victim demanding ransomware payment is the same person that deployed the ransomware? Because if it isn't the case, then the issue becomes is the victim pays the ransom to a third party and not to the threat actor that deployed the ransomware. And they might not be able to get their encrypted file back after paying the ransom to the wrong person. Also, from the legal side, uh, and this is sort of on the organization side, if sovereign nations were the primary actors that deployed ransomware across IT systems, I think a lot of organization leaders need to be careful when they decide to pay ransom to these sovereign actors because there are U.S. sanction laws that they, they have to take into consideration before initiating the ransom transaction. The Office of Foreign Asset Control, also known as OFAC, is an office within the Department of Commerce that maintains a list of individuals and organizations that U.S. persons should not transact with also known as the Specially Designated Nationals and Blocked Persons List. People might hear on the news about U.S. government issuing sanctions, and this is where that law plays a role. OFAC has a list of cryptocurrency addresses that U.S. persons should not interact with, and if organizations decide to pay ransom, they have to make sure that the destination address, the cryptocurrency address that they're going to be send the ransom payment to is not part of this sanctions list or else they may inadvertently be violating U.S. sanctions laws, which increase legal liability to that organization. So we need to be really careful if somebody wants to, you know, resolve the situation by just paying ransom because there are all these other hidden liabilities that gets attached once somebody wants to pay the ransom to the threat actor. Very good point, Daniel. And, and, and I'd add one more thing too that makes it even more complicated. And that is, even if you pay, there's no guarantee you'll get to decrypt your data. They're bad actors. They're called that for a reason. They may just take your money and walk away and like leave you with all your encrypted data. So it's even more complicated. So it's better to be proactive, have everything backed up and your plan in place possibly even printed out and in the notebook, ready to go, then have to be reactive and go through those decisions of whether you pay or not pay. Daniel, what is your advice on mitigation strategies? Sure. So the first thing I do is I monitor what the federal government announces regarding all these cyber threats. Earlier this year, the National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force released a very informative ransomware fact sheet that I highly recommend everybody uh, take a look at because it's very informative about the threat of ransomware. And also, one agency that I like to highlight is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is an agency under the Department of Homeland Security. I kind of envision themselves as sort of like the firefighters when there's a fire 
And the FBI role is of being more of a detective after the fire has occurred for the purpose of gathering evidence for future prosecution. So the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA, they publish a lot of useful information about ongoing cyber threats and even ones that require immediate attention for big corporations using all these infrastructure monitoring technologies. The second thing I do is making sure that any of my malware detection tools, antivirus software, they're up to date. I would note, however, that you should not depend on these tools alone to have a silver bullet against all these cyber threats because in the beginning when the ransomware first emerged, no antivirus software identified it as malware because it was such a unique thing in the cyber wild jungle on the internet. So these malware detection tools are as useful as long as the malwares are correctly identified and uh, segregated, but any zero-day vulnerabilities, any new unique malware that's out there, these tools cannot detect and mitigate those type of unique threats. This might be something that not a lot of people do, but I also regularly monitor the network traffic that's being interacted with all of my devices, including my smartphone, so that I can see if my, let's say my phone is interacting with a server that I'm not familiar with, I take a closer inspection, making sure that I don't have any rogue apps that are trying to communicate with a server out there that I am not too familiar with. And monitoring network traffic is, I think, something that's needs to be done. And I think down the line, there may be cybersecurity solutions that people can subscribe to or purchase that can easily monitor strange network traffic that might be going in and out of their personal devices. And finally, whenever there's a software update, and this is just beyond my malware detection software, but any software update, I read or kind of skim through uh, the patch notes, making sure that I know what's going on, what's going to be installed, what type of changes are going to be made on any of my updated programs uh, to be informed. And I think that's going to be the key thing is you can't fully inoculate yourself against future threats, but being informed and taking a proactive action can greatly mitigate your system against any new type of malicious threats that develop in the future and secure your systems before catastrophic events happen. Thank you for that advice, Daniel. So we are close to our time for today, but just in wrapping up, Chris, is there any hope on the horizon? Do we see an, maybe an eventual end or at least slowing of these attacks? I think as long as there's money to be made, it's likely to continue. So uh, another reason why maybe you shouldn't pay. But the, I also think that there's going to be improvements in uh, the ransomware detection where operating systems and malware systems will be able to find applications that are doing strange things with disk drives that shouldn't be. Just simple, Microsoft's released some improvements in Windows 10 just look for, for ransomware kind of behavior. And they've also done backup improvement tools to help with that too. So I think that there's, there, are, there are improving tools and improving ways to mitigate this threat. But as long as they make money with it, it's going to continue.
And that's where we're going to leave it for today. So Daniel and Chris, thank you again for being here, sharing your expertise with us. A thank you to everyone listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Exhibit AI, to hear more about the intersection of law and emerging technologies. For more from CLCT, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and our website, all linked in the description of this episode. Last but not least, this podcast is made possible by grant funding provided by the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, funded by Cisco Systems, Inc. We appreciate their continued support for our independent research efforts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Exhibit AI signing off.